Welcome to the first ever San Diego State University Rhetoric and Writing Studies Department podcast, The Rhetorical Situation. I'm Rachel Michelle Fernandez. And I'm Nicole Golden. We're both first year graduate students in RWS. 2020 was er, challenging to say the least. And so with all this distance learning, Zoom fatigue, and social isolation, we thought we'd take this opportunity to have a few genuine one-on-one, well, one-on-two, Right. Conversations about how this unprecedented time has affected the lives of our fellow students, alumni, faculty, and staff. In this episode, we speak with our department chair, Dr. Glenn McClish, about returning as chair during the pandemic. So we've had a lot of time talking about being good to our students, but also being good to our faculty. And how the field of rhetoric has exploded in the last several decades. Uh, it's changed dramatically. It's become, it's become much more inclusive in terms of culture, in terms of race, in terms of gender. We speak with our new assistant professor, Dr. Consuelo Salas, about beginning her position from a distance. I have really uh, enjoyed being able to get to meet the students, even if it's virtually. And her specialty focuses border rhetorics and food studies. I really enjoy it because it's a way to tap into embodied knowledge. It's a way to tap into knowledges that maybe aren't always uh, traditionally valued in higher ed. We also talked to two recent alumni, one who made the transition from graduate school to the professional world this last year. Oh yeah, postgraduate in COVID, so mostly just the job, not a whole lot else, yeah. And the other who joined a prestigious PhD program despite the odds being stacked against them. People always are, or, or always kind of just when I tell them my story, like, oh, I'm sorry you went through that. And I'm like, no, I don't want you to be sorry because without that experience, I wouldn't be where I'm at now. We also check in with one of our hardest working staff members, a fellow grad student who has very different goals for her education than most, and an undergraduate in her final year who was raised by two SDSU alums and grew up literally across the street from campus. We're in a district that has like three other preschools, so why did you choose this one? She said, I wanted you to be by university to, you know, implement that idea. You know, what, what is that big building? How can I get in there? As we've learned this year, we're all in this together. So get ready to get personal. And rhetorical. With a multiplicity of voices from RWS. Let's get things started by checking in with our department chair, Dr. Glenn McClish. Hi, Professor. Good. For those of you who may not be aware, Professor McClish chaired at SDSU's RWS department for 18 years. That's quite a long time. After passing the torch to Dr. Suzanne Bordelon for a few years and a brief term as interim dean from June 2019 to August 2020, he has since returned to chairing the department. We decided to ask him what it was like chairing the department during the ongoing pandemic. It's been been challenging because uh, students have struggled and faculty have struggled. And so I've spent a lot of time talking to faculty about how they need to be more aware of and sympathetic with their students who are having great pressures on them. The other part of that has been talking to instructors about their issues because a lot of instructors are under tremendous pressure. A lot of our teachers have young children at home who are being, who are doing Zoom schooling, who need constant mm. supervision, and they're also trying to teach their classes and write their papers. And some of them have really, really had, have really had terrible tr- troubles balancing everything. So we've had to spend a lot of time talking about being good to our students, but also being good to our faculty. 
We had to really work to try to uh, help everyone get through this. Uh, it's been a challenge just for all of us not being able to go to campus. And, and I said many times in class, I talked about how I wish we were sitting around that table with this class and how much more fun that would be and how much more of an authentic experience it would be. Anyway, everyone has felt that. We've missed going to class. We've missed going to office hours. We've missed going to the library. We've missed just being on campus and being around people who are learning. Uh, it's, it's hard when everything takes place, you know, at your kitchen table or on the couch or wherever you work and you feel like you're not really connected to the greater university. It's hard to work that way. It's hard to feel like you're really a part of something. It makes teaching and learning, I think, feel compromised. So we're really hoping to be back on campus in the fall and to be able to reconvene the lives that we knew before all this took place. Really excited about that as well. Yeah, you know, I, it's funny. I, I've never met either of you, for example. Uh, That's true. You know. And, uh, you know, you're, you'll be halfway through your degree by the time I meet you. So... That's kind, of, uh, that's kind of alarming in a way. It's funny that Professor McClish mentioned not having met either of us in person because Rachel, you and I have never met either. Wait, we haven't? Just <laughs> kidding. You're all the way in Michigan and I'm here in Oceanside and yet here we are. So I'd say the distance learning has also had some upsides. Yeah, so there is an upside and it has to do with the fact that we can now do Zoom workshops with people from all over the world. And not only will they talk to folks from our department, but we can bring in audience from all over the world too. The department has also been using the webinar format to help us see how to learn and teach more inclusively. The pedagogy series that began last semester was born out of a summer conference aimed to figure out how the department could become more anti-racist and equitable. It works very well. We've had, so far we've had three good talks and we'll have uh, at, least, is at least two more, and I hope four more in the spring. And they've been focused directly on how instructors can respond to the diversity of their students in ways that uh, empower students rather than hold them back. Do you think that rhetoric is a, a field of study that's, that's expanding right now? Dramatically. Uh, it's really expanding a lot. When I got into rhetoric in the 70s, a long, long time ago, it was really more about history. It was more just simply writ written texts and speeches. It was a pretty much a white and a male field. And in the past, you know, 44 years, uh, it's changed dramatically. It's become much more inclusive in terms of culture, in terms of race, in terms of uh, gender, uh, in terms of just pers perspective on understanding how people persuade one another how communication works. So the field has just exploded, uh, exploded in the, in the time I've been involved in it. And speaking of changes to rhetoric, one of our recent RWS MA graduates helped facilitate a lot of conversations surrounding inclusivity and was a real trailblazer when they were a grad student. Uh, so I feel like I was a pain in the ass um, at SDSU. Um, <laughs> That's Ruben Mendoza, who also goes by the name Ruby. The reason I say that is because, you know, we've I had faculty, predominantly white, which is true in our department, um, tell me as a queer person of color who's also in the trans spectrum, to do this, to do that, this is how you'll get published or accepted, right? Um, and I think for me, it might be different than most students because we go in grad school and we're trying to like figure out who we are. I kind of had a sense of who I was because I was approaching 30. Um, I knew that I wanted to teach and I knew I wanted to do things that intersected with my life. So Ruby decided to go against some of the advice of faculty and do things their way. 
after taking the class RWS 609, The Theory and Practice of Teaching Composition, they decided to challenge the curriculum taught to undergraduates. I said, I'm not teaching anything you give me. Your curriculum is oppressive and I'm not gonna teach these like fancy terminologies that students will never encounter for the rest of their lives. Mm. While going against the grain certainly wasn't easy, Ruby found faculty to support them and the outcome was life-changing. I was able to put in texts that were meaningful for me and I think for students mm-hmm. and um, faculty realized that, you know, and I, I realize now, not then, right? For me, I felt I was like being combative, but I now I look back and I see how Jason Parker and Louise Satini and, and Chris Weary they really gave me the ability to do what I wanted. And that was incredible. And we don't get that in a lot of places. And they will support you and work with you. And so um, because of that, I really was able to realize like how to take charge of my academic career and my choices. Ruby's choices earned them a coveted position as well as a prestigious fellowship award at Michigan State University's Writing, Rhetoric, and American Cultures PhD program. Their tenacity has not gone unnoticed by their colleagues. I do the same thing here at MSU. People like are like, we love how like you're you don't hold back. And I was like, well, if I don't if I hold back, I'm risking someone's life and their educational career, and I'm not going to have these inequalities and gaps where students of color are quitting, especially queer LGBT students, because we failed to like incorporate things that are literally life saving. Ruby's willingness to show up for others comes from a deeply personal place, a truly remarkable story of survival, resilience, and mutual aid. Always, or, or, or always kind of just when I tell them my story, like, oh, I'm sorry you went through that. And I'm like, no, I don't want you to be sorry because without that experience, I wouldn't be where I'm at now. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is I come from two undocumented parents. Um, my father left us when I was an infant. My mom had to survive and do things that no child should see to, to feed us and house us. I lived under bridges. Most of my life was in disarray. I, but again, like even though it wasn't this idea of disarray, it felt normal to me. Because even though my mother struggled and she wasn't the best role model, I felt safe because mm. my mom was a very strong Latinx woman. At the age of 14, despite finally finding some stability, Ruby got kicked out after their mother found out they were queer. Facing homelessness yet again, Ruby dropped out of school. And I was a drug addict and I was an alcoholic. Um, And it wasn't until my early 20s when I wanted to become a general manager of a, a restaurant they were like, we can't hire you at, in that position, particularly because you don't have a high school diploma or an equivalent. And I was like, oh, damn, I have to go back to school. Due so, to lack of resources, Ruby had to be strategic. They got a special waiver to help them attend community college. I lied that I had a GD video in Chuck, and um, I just took preparatory courses. So, you know, we had to take these exams to see where we place, and I just kind of slowly built my way up. It took Ruby a few years to get through community college as they continued to battle with addiction issues and homelessness. Nevertheless, they got into several universities. But just as they were set to transfer to Portland State, tragedy struck again. Ruby's mother's home burned down. My whole life was in shambles, and the only people that were there for me, out of friends, my friends declined to help, were my English faculty and journalism professors at the community college. 
They gave me money to survive. They gave me money to to live. And they came together because they were like, "We, you deserve to be at a university." Mm. Um, and it was it was one of the most remarkable experiences because it was a point in my life where I was like, you know, this happens. You know, we, we receive failure and we just got to deal with it, quit school and try to survive again. Mm. But they were like, no, we're not putting you in that cycle. We're going to break it. Due to the circumstances, however, Portland State was too far away and cost prohibitive. Ruby ended up attending Chico State instead, which is where they stumbled across rhetoric and an inspiring new mentor. The literacy studies and the rhetoric and writing studies was from a new faculty member, Kendall, Dr. Kendall Leon, um, this Latinx woman, um, and she inspired me. She said, um, you know, research whatever you want, write about whatever you want, write about these rhetorical practices, and that was like a game changer. And like, you know, for me it was scary because I, I, I come from a place where you're not supposed to talk about your feelings, and so talking about trans issues um, and sexual violence, and um, she just supported it. And so, you know, people, I don't believe in myself, right? But people were like, you're gonna be a big deal. We believe in you, like apply to grad school. And I'm like, I don't think so. And so I, I did on their court and got into every Emmy program I applied to. And I was Amazing. like, oh, wow, I got in. Um, and then, you know, that's my journey. With Ruby's inspiring life story in mind, we asked them how they think our department's core curriculum could continue to evolve to better support our students. I think our department is great. So I want to start off with that. But I also think it's limited, right? And when I say it's limited, it doesn't have that cultural aspect of the work that is so vital and so important in our research and in our lives. Um, you know, I kept thinking when I was in that program, why don't we have cultural rhetorics as a core course? And, you know, people were like, well, what is cultural rhetorics? It's, it's an accumulation of feminism, um, black perspectives. It's about... Um, queerness, transness, it's about cultures that are significant and often ignored. So one, I would Im I would make that request. You know, I, I think that would be like life-saving for some. Ruby tells us a bit about the curriculum at Michigan State and how we might adopt a similar approach in our graduate program at SDSU. It's not the history rhetoric, we're looking at a history of rhetoric. And at a history of rhetoric is different. It's about what's happening now, what's happening then, through perspectives of people of color to talk about them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're, it's a completely different class and our assignments are so different. It, it, it has a lot more agency where, you know, we, instead of writing about these three articles, right, we talk about like, what does this mean to us as scholars, as educators, as citizens? Like, what are we making sense of it? Do we think it's important? And we're able to like do a quick two-page thing that it's low stakes. You know, if you do it, you get the credit. And so for core, core curriculum, we really need to think about, you know, we're in an MA program. Our, not everyone's going to go into a PhD program. <laughs> um, and so maybe pulling back and providing some lenses and, and resources that can really empower students through those cultural avenues or whatever else is needed. One of the ways the department has begun to address some of the issues Ruby describes is through the pedagogy webinar series mentioned earlier. We also have a new faculty member, Dr. Consuelo Salas, who is helping expand the program's curriculum, including teaching a cultural rhetorics class this semester. 
we caught up with Dr. Solace over the winter break to hear more about her background and what it was like starting her new position during such an unusual time. It's been an interesting year, uh, an interesting first few months. I have really uh, enjoyed being able to get to meet the students, even if it's virtually, considering all the challenges that they had going into the semester. I wasn't sure Mm -hmm. how students would be responding, uh, but everybody did awesome work and they were really engaged with the course. So it was just a really awesome experience with teaching. Um, I've also partnered with Dr. Shepard and am now co-faculty advisor for the student chapter of the Rhetoric Society of America. And through that, I've been able to meet a few of the graduate students um, virtually. And same thing there. Uh, The graduate students are also really amazing. And it's been uh, interesting and different to get to meet people uh, and get to know who they are online. Uh, But overall, it's been a great experience uh, so far, although not without its challenges and definitely a lot of Zoom fatigue. But overall, it was it's been a really great experience this first few months. Dr. Solace also acknowledged having discovered a hidden peril to being perhaps a bit too enthusiastic about Zoom events. One thing that I found myself doing very early on in the semester, though, was I would see these really awesome talks and I was thinking it's really awesome that this is a side effect of all of this because these are great talks that I would never have been able to attend otherwise. Uh, But I quickly realized that there were a lot of talks that I was interested in and I suddenly had to be like, I can only be on Zoom so many hours a day before I just Mm -hmm. collapse. So while there were a lot of great opportunities, it was like a kid in a candy store at the beginning, I was just kind of signing up for everything and was like, wait, (laughs) I got to back up a little bit um, and be realistic of what I can attend because the uh, accessibility of them was just amazing. But it was also like, this thing is real. We can only do this for so long. And speaking of enthusiasm, I think you and I got a bit too excited when we first read about Dr. Salas's background. And we've been looking at your C- at your CV and just <laughs> looking at... <laughs> we were joking. We're like, oh my god, your CV makes me want to die. Right. <laughs> That's <laughs> what we were saying before we around. chatted with you. Yeah, that might have been a bit much, but her story is pretty cool. Yeah, it was... I went to a pre-med high school uh, when I was a kid. Yeah. And so I was set to be a doctor. I wanted to be a forensic pathologist. I wanted to be the person who did autopsies and determined causes oh, wow. of death. Young Dr. Salas was soon confronted with the fact that while the end game seemed appealing, the path to get there was less than fulfilling. So, uh, against my parents' uh, wishes and slash them not really knowing about it, I started taking a number of English classes. I quickly realized that that is where my heart was and that's where my passion was. I just really enjoyed reading and writing and just thinking through ideas. After getting her master's in English literature, Dr. Salas was trying to figure out next steps. The program that I was in in at the University of Texas at El Paso has the PhD in rhetoric and composition. So another faculty member encouraged me to take the intro to rhetoric master's course um, just so that I could kind of get an idea of what the field was about as I was applying. And I took that class and was like, this is the field I want to go into because rhetoric was the field where I thought I could have much larger implications for the work that I'm doing. And it doesn't have to just remain in the academy. Despite not knowing exactly how she was going to do so, Dr. Solace went into her PhD with the idea of merging rhetoric with her true love, food. Well, food studies to be more exact. We asked her to tell us a bit about what food studies is and how she came to connect it with rhetoric. Yeah, so food studies is uh, 
very simply the study of food in society, and that looks like a lot of different things. So we can think about what is just very simply like the narrative that happens on our plate of food. So if you look at any dish that you eat, you can think about one, how did it get there? Uh, did you buy it? Did you make it yourself? If you made it yourself, where did you learn to make it? How did you make it? What utensils did you use to make it? What utensils are you using to consume it? Where does all of that knowledge and practice come from? And then the larger questions of how did you come to know that recipe or come to have that dish in front of you? So is it uh, issues of distribution? Like, did you go to a fast food restaurant and purchase it? Um, did you make it yourself? What's the recipe? Who taught you the recipe? So there's a lot that happens. And so food studies is kind of looking at this very micro moment in our daily lives and then trying to understand how it became the practice that it is. I'm so eager to talk to you more about this down the line because I'm, this is, one of my obsessions. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. Like I I really enjoy it because it's a way to tap into embodied knowledge. It's a way to tap into knowledges that maybe aren't always uh, traditionally valued in higher ed, like women's knowledge, home what we call women's knowledges and home knowledges, and then bringing those into the academic space and and really paying attention to them and valuing them and being like they have worth here. Like we should pay attention. Um, and so for me particularly, I was able to finally bridge rhetoric and food studies through the subfield of visual rhetoric. And so what my research really focuses on, and this is the work that I'm doing in my first uh, monograph that's currently underway, uh, but it's looking at what visuals are paired with Mexican foodstuffs and how and why have those images become markers of Mexican and or Mexican foods. Uh, so you have a handful of images when you pair them with food products will automatically indicate to us that those foods are Mexican and it's curious how and why that happened. Uh, and so that's what my first book is exploring. Dr. Salas's other specialty is border rhetorics. Not only did she grow up in the border region of El Paso, Dr. Salas completed her undergraduate coursework, master's degree, and PhD at the University of Texas El Paso or UTEP. I was a first-generation college student. My parents had both started college but didn't finish. Uh, and so uh, I was the first one in my family to go on to get a master's degree and then the first one to go on and get a PhD. So there was a grad student uh, organization that posted a conference uh, in my MA. And so I invited my parents to come and they were able to come. And that was awesome because they were able to see some of the work that I did. And it made sense. Like when I did my presentation, they got what I was doing. Um, and that was really cool for them to, for me, that they had an understanding of the work that I was doing. For her first academic position, Dr. Salas moved to Charlotte to teach at the University of North Carolina. She tells us about what it was like to finally move to a different city and how it made her appreciate the uniqueness of border regions like El Paso. It's like a fish in water, right? Like you don't know you're in water until you are pulled out of it. Um, Right. And so there was just a lot of things that I just took for granted as just knowns about the border region that I didn't realize were special to the border region until I left. Having grown up here and seeing the beauty that is in multiple cultures intermixing, um, the, the ability to just kind of walk around and just hear Spanish as well as English uh, on radio, on the news, just kind of in at the house at home like all of that 
Uh, the availability of certain types of foods is awesome. Speaking of foods, uh, so there's just something really special. And there's also, I think, a way of just kind of knowing and being that is specific to border regions, right? Like you're always embedded in this two world, right? Um, this mm-hmm. kind of this two world space. It makes total sense then that Dr. Solace would apply for a position at SDSU. Her lived experience gives her a special understanding of the needs of many of our students. I always grew up on the U.S. side of the border, but I knew and understood cross-border life, right? Like having to cross the bridge, having to get up two hours before you have to be anywhere because you don't know what the line is going to be like. Um, All of the extra labor that happens when you're traversing these international borders, and all the the beauty that comes with it, but also all the challenges that come with it. So I felt like uh, that was just something I knew about my students at UTEP that I didn't really have any kind of a reference point for my students in Charlotte. And so I'm just looking forward to getting back to that border region. I think it's a little bit more familiar, but I will acknowledge that it's a very different type of border region. All borders are different. Linguistic variations along different parts of the U.S. Southern Mexico border are different. So. I am excited to learn what it is, what, what's, what, what that border community is like, um, but also just really glad to be back in that space because I think there is something about the energy of being so close to such a variety of different cultural backgrounds that I just find very appealing. We're so lucky to have Dr. Salas on our faculty and look forward to learning more about her experiences with border rhetorics, visual rhetoric, and food studies. Yeah, she definitely brings a lot to the table. No pun intended. (laughs) But seriously, hearing about Dr. Solace's ability to connect what she's passionate about with rhetoric is a good reminder about how this field has so many different applications. We decided to catch up with another recent MA grad to find out what postgraduate life has been like for her and how she's applying her passions. Oh yeah, postgraduate in COVID, so mostly just a job, (laughs) not a whole lot else, yeah. That's Clara Cushing. Clara was in the same cohort as Ruby, but instead of going straight into a PhD program, she decided to enter into the world of professional writing. It's been a couple months now. I am the grant writer and partner relationship manager, and Ignited is a small nonprofit. It's a staff of five people that are full-time, and it focuses on connecting educators, um, teachers, with industry by putting them in companies for a summer fellowship. And I just really like, I mean, I love education and I love nonprofits and their specific mission was really appealing to me because they're connecting academia and the professional world. And that's Mm -hmm. something that is really important to me. And that's actually one of the reasons I chose the program at San Diego state too, is because it had that connection that uh, I came from a background as an English major and there isn't as much connection between like analyzing literature and the real world or like what I was going to do with that in a professional space for professional writing. At Ignited, Clara has already contributed to a few important projects to help keep the organization funded and running, putting into practice many of the skills taught here in the RWSMA program. It's a lot of collaboration. So I've done a lot of editing for a few big grants that we put in. We've already put in some grants for like the Gates Foundation, which was a really big one. It's a lot of organization um, and the persuasiveness of you don't have a lot of room 
to really convince someone to give you money to fund the program. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so really important to, to have that organization piece. I've also been designing pitches, like trying to use visual rhetoric a little bit, which I unfortunately did not take mm-hmm. any visual rhetoric classes while I was in the department. I'm kind of regretting that now because I think <laughs> it would have been really useful. <laughs> so that's kind of my role so far is that we've put in some grants and waiting to hear back from a few of them, and then just a lot of funder research, too, um, which was another part of the program that I enjoyed, too, is having that research aspect. I wrote a thesis, so it was months and months of research. (laughs) We asked Clara about her background and what led her to RWS. So I took a couple years between undergrad and the program Um, I taught English in the Czech Republic for a year, and then I was doing a few internships in, like, communications and uh, magazine writing in D.C. Um, And I I wanted to kind of break into professional writing, and I felt kind of – first of all, it can be kind of hard to break into certain professional writing. Like, I think I was trying to go into publishing, thinking that's what I wanted to do. And that's really hard to do without experience. Um, And I also just felt in general like I had taken a couple years off of writing a lot because I had been an English major, so I had written a ton. And then I had two years of doing like kind of other jobs where I wasn't writing as much. And I really wanted to go back and like get get my writing skills better or like kind of back to where they had been or like improve even more, which I definitely have looking back at my writing from undergrad that I thought was really good after going through this <laughs> master's program, right. like definitely have improved. Clara thanks the program for not only improving her writing, but for also offering that doorway she was looking for into the professional world. Yeah, I think it definitely, like I was saying earlier about um, how ignited bridges that gap between academia and the real world, that's definitely what this program does too, is that you get both. You get the really like um, philosophical kind of classes, you know, like history of rhetoric and stuff like that. And then you get these ones where you're going out and pitching projects to nonprofits and actually writing them and, and they're using your work. It was Clara's job search during the pandemic that especially validated her decision to complete a master's in the RWS program. Rhetoric, you can just apply it to so many different careers. I've been job searching for months, like even before finishing the program and just looking all the time. And while there are other job fields maybe that are becoming more limited during the pandemic, I was always seeing different types of writing jobs that were like continually coming up, especially in tech, like different writing jobs that have to do with tech, especially because you can work remotely and Mm. everybody needs to, especially now, like your communication with the world is a lot of times through writing or through different rhetorical means. So yeah, I think those jobs are definitely, definitely still in need of being filled. <laughs> wow, that is great to hear. I was already feeling pretty good about choosing this graduate program and now I feel even better about it. It does seem like the MA program has something for everyone in a way, even for someone who doesn't necessarily care about the degree. Honestly, I'm not doing it for the degree. I'm doing it just because I really, really love the classes. That's Katherine Hood. She's a fellow RWS graduate student and working mom who is taking things one class at a time. We caught up with her just after finishing the fall semester to find out her story. Katherine, this is your third semester, is that correct? No, just second, actually. Second semester, second class with a four-year gap in between. Whoa, I almost missed that. A four-year gap? I started in fall 2016, 
Um, and then because I was getting ready to move out of San Diego that spring while I was planning a wedding and uh, looking for a new job and everything, I decided not to continue. And then I couldn't continue until uh, COVID forced the rhetoric program online. So while the pandemic is obviously a heartbreaking disaster, the distance learning that resulted has definitely had an upside for Catherine. She talks a bit more about having to leave the program back in 2016 and her spontaneous decision to return last semester. Um, so I was so sad to leave that program behind um, and just kind of kept hoping they would offer it online uh, and then realized uh, as I was talking to a couple colleagues about some grad programs they either had done or were in, I realized like, oh man, I wish I could continue with that San Diego rhetoric program. And then I realized, oh my goodness, <laughs> I think they have to offer those classes online. And I looked it up and it was already <laughs> the first week of class. Uh, I think class had already, I think the first week of first class was already done. Um, but I could still register for it for another like day. And so I just was talking to my husband. I'm like, should I do it? Is it crazy? I'm working full time and we have a toddler and we have another baby on the way. Like this feels a little crazy. And he just encouraged me like, I think you'd regret it more if you didn't take it. And so I'm like, yep, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the next class. And so I signed up and caught up on the week of work I missed. And then here we are. <laughs> what first brought Catherine to the RWS department was a pretty unique path that began with her learning to use an ancient rhetorical training technique to teach communication skills to kids. Yeah, I was first exposed to the progymnasmata. I don't even know exactly how to say it. I've been <laughs> exposed to it for like 10 years. I've never gotten where to put the emphasis. We just call it progym. <laughs> I'm going to call it progym the way that <laughs> we've shortened it. For those of you who haven't studied ancient rhetoric or heard of the progymnasmata, or progym for short, as Catherine mentioned, it's essentially a series of preliminary exercises for rhetoric students that increase in difficulty to prepare them for writing declamations or dramatic orations. The exercises were developed in ancient Greece and Rome and recorded in handbooks, of which only a few have survived. The most widely recognized is by Apthonius. In, I think, 2011, I started working for a school that um, follows the kind of classical education tradition, which is kind of, uh, it's this resurgence of the way that education really was from ancient times until probably early 1900s. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of uh, bringing back old classical education methods. And one of them was the way that um, the pro gym teaches writing, because um, that was used for hundreds, maybe a couple thousand years at least, maybe more. Yeah, I think it was thousands of years before it started fading a little bit. Um, and so... But all that I had to work off of was really, it was just that Apthonius's description of the progen method and his sample crea, and I was supposed to teach sixth graders how to write a crea. A crea is the third exercise and basically involves taking an action or quote from a noteworthy person and then elaborating on it. And I had no clue what I was doing, and we didn't have a good Whoa. curriculum. <laughs> And I was like, I don't understand this. I don't understand how this is training them to be good writers. I don't see the whole picture. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm just so confused. Like, how in the world is this going to get them to communicate well? After a couple of years of fumbling through, as Catherine says, teaching this unfamiliar method, she ended up moving to San Diego to teach at another classical education school only to find herself in a similar situation. Um, but the difference this time was that I was working uh, closely with a colleague who had gotten his master's in rhetoric through San Diego State, um, and he 
had learned about the progym nasmata method and he understood it and he saw the whole picture he saw it from beginning and end to end and he really actually saw how uh teaching it with fidelity throughout the whole program it it teaches everyone like exactly the kind of communication writing skills they need to be effective communicators so Catherine kept going and getting progressively more confident with the progym eventually finding some newly published curriculum that made things even clearer, further solidifying her embrace of the method. She's become such a progym pro that now she gets paid to be a mentor teacher and teach other teachers how to use it. And so now it's really fun to be able to get to know that whole program better, to see how we teach it, to see how I can equip teachers to teach it better. And then taking this history of rhetoric course has helped even more because I get a fuller view of where how how the progym developed and then reading Apthonius in context and seeing what led up to him recording this handbook and um that that also just helped a lot too to help me understand better the whole method because I have a whole lot of incredulous teachers uh who I'm mentoring right now who don't really understand it just like I didn't understand it for a long time. Before her journey with rhetoric and the progym, Catherine's first teaching job was in Cameroon, where she spent two years working for a missionary family. I'm so grateful for those two years. Like it definitely came with its challenges, but um, it was, yeah, it was a phenomenal experience. And I feel very, very um, just grateful to have had the time to get to know the people there, to, um, I mean, I was definitely very formed by the family I live with, with their incredible gift of hospitality um, and love for the people around them. Um, so yeah, it was it was a really great experience. And it was also a fun examination at communication too. With her experience teaching in Africa in mind, we asked her if she thinks that the progym method is applicable cross-culturally. In looking at just the, the progym exercises, I mean, starting with fables and narratives, every culture is united by mm -hmm. their fables and their narratives. I mean, that's where it all starts. That's the the, the oral history that lasts are fables and narratives. Um, you can find, um, yeah. you know, wise sayings, proverbs, that's in every single culture. And so when you go into the next stage of uh, defending the wisdom of a proverb, as in, you know, that you would for a crea or a maxim, that's easily applicable to any culture because every culture has their wise sayings. With all her acquired knowledge and all that's on her plate currently, we were curious as to what Catherine's grad school endgame might look like. I have no clue how long it'll take me. Um, my original goal was just to take the 12 unit certificate. Um, that was kind of my first thought uh, when I started the program. I'm like, well, you know, I don't even know if I really wanted to do grad school, but I was hearing about this program from a couple of colleagues and it just sounded fantastic. And and then it's kind of still the case with like, well, I might as well have one attainable goal of the 12 unit certificate. So I have two more classes to go. And then I reach kind of goal one. Um, and so mm -hmm. however wow, many so classes cool. I can take, then I'm benefiting from it. And I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm learning about rhetoric. And that's really my main goal. I just want to learn more because I find it fascinating. And if I don't get the degree, well, I got to take some really awesome classes and I learned. And that's what I want to do. It's really inspiring to hear Catherine talk about her love of learning and her reasons for taking classes. Sometimes in pursuing our goals, we often forget about the path to getting there being rewarding in and of itself. And speaking of inspiring, one of our staff members is also juggling a lot of responsibilities in order to help our department run smoothly. So how I came to SDSU, I was actually going through a really rough patch in my life. That's Claudia Gracio. She's an administrative coordinator for RWS. 
Um, that year, I lost my mom to um, cancer. During her mom's battle with cancer, Claudia was serving as 24-7 caregiver while also trying to balance a new job at a local school district. The time needed to properly care for her mother eventually took its toll. And unfortunately, since she was still in her probationary period, the district let Claudia go. I took some time off, um, took my time looking for a new job, and I came across, you know, I just thought, hey, well, why don't I apply at SDSU? So I was just, you know, browsing through all the positions and the descriptions, and, you know, I came through rhetoric and writing, and at the time, I was just like, okay, I'm just going to apply. Claudia went in for an interview, but was less than confident about how it went. Honestly, I have this fear of just speaking, public speaking, interviews, and I left the interview thinking that I bombed the interview because I was so nervous oh, and no. I was stuttering like I'm doing now. And as a matter of fact, they... No, you're not, you're not <laughs> stuttering at all. Just so you know, that's in your head. Yeah. You're great. Yeah. And so I got a call a few days later saying that they liked me and they wanted me to go, um, you know, to do another interview with HR and they gave me the job and I was pleasantly surprised. I was like, wow, it was like <laughs> one of the best things that happened to me that year that, you know, after going through what I went through the for the past four years prior, I mean, right. that was one of the, you know, best things, getting a job during your lowest point in your life. Since arriving at SDSU, Claudia has been really happy with the work environment and talks about how it reflects her values. I'd rather be in a place in a healthy work environment and love where love the people that I work with versus working in a place where you're getting paid, you know, very well, like I don't know, I don't know, three figures or whatever, or six figures, I'm sorry. <laughs> and like, you know, not having great people to work with. I think that's always been my philosophy whenever I worked, you know, looked for a position. I worked in a lot of corporations before and I don't know, I just I really like the you know, the group of people and the students and, you know, the just you get a really good feel when you like walk into the department. You know, you don't uh the people you work with are is the people you work with is, is really important to me when working at a at, I mean anywhere. Cuz I've worked with yeah. You know, I've worked in other places where like it's a very negative or it's just not a welcoming vibe and at the department it's not like that at all with how much she loves the work environment at the department it must be hard for claudia to be away from it and isolated at home it's it's difficult i just i had a baby this year so having a baby oh thank you <laughs> I, being a new mom and you know juggling you know crying baby and having to be in a meeting and you know sometimes uh <laughs> Uh, I had I had to have my son in my some of my meetings, um, but the flexibility's been kind of nice, you know, because it's just a something new that we've never experienced before. It's 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 been pleasant because I get to see my son's first steps, you know, go through all the milestones with him, and it's been pleasant because um, you know you're the comfort you're at the comfort of your own home, but then again I do miss you know, walking to Starbucks, you know, which is one of the uh, advantages where we're, we're at at the department because it's only a few feet away. <laughs> but um, <laughs> other than that, I miss, you know, 
walking into people's offices and people walking into our office and just seeing having that one-on-one -on -one, having that human connection as a former sdsu student herself being behind the scenes has given claudia a whole new perspective on how the school and department supports the students that's something that i really admire about you know the people i work with um you know my chair and all the prof uh, professors and all the lecturers and the fellows and the TAs and all the staff it's just the primary focus is um, always trying to meet the needs of the students and it's like a movie it's like you, you don't people only see like the um, you know the movie in the picture people don't see like the amount of people it takes to make that movie like you know it uh, as a student I didn't realize how much work it it takes to you know create a syllabus and you know it's just it's a lot of work and I really admire the people that I work with because of it. And we admire Claudia for all she does for us. We also admire our undergraduate students and all they've been going through to earn their degrees. Absolutely. We caught up with one undergraduate who is in her final semester to get some perspective on finishing a four-year degree amidst the chaos of the pandemic. Yay! Rebecca! Okay. Hi! Could I, I'm gonna put headphones on really quick just so I yeah, no problem. No problem. Sorry I'm going to take that. you off speaker. My name is Rebecca Kudal. I am an undergraduate student in the Rhetoric and Writing Studies Department at SDSU. In addition to being a student, Rebecca is also part of the Writing Fellows Program. She tells us a bit about her experiences as a fellow and how it's helped shape her goals. I fell in love with those classes. I just really liked uh, fellowing for RWS 100, 105, 200. I still do um, because as a uh, I know, and I'm sure both of you know, being a tutor, being, writing, you're, you're constantly learning, right? Mm -hmm. uh, even though you have your own first-year students that you are tutoring, uh, you're helping out, I think it's safe to say that, that you learn as well, even though you're taking the same class with them, like, twice at that point. But <laughs> uh, I think that's just the beauty of education. My main goal is to become a professor at a four-year university, preferably in California, so it's a it's an opportunity that I couldn't really pass up, and uh, now we're here. So, right here we are at Zoom <laughs> University. <laughs> we asked Rebecca what she would want to focus on if she was a professor. I'd really like to study Latinx youth and how they are taught writing uh, from high school to like the first years of college. I just think it's very interesting because it, it's it's interesting to see how writing can affect. Uh, the mind of a Latinx student because of certain situations that they may have experienced in life. I had the opportunity to, to um, be a writing fellow for uh, the Summer Bridge program at SDSU with the EOP students, uh, yeah. I think 2019. And um, I, I really found why I liked to tutor and, and teach writing to students of a bit more diverse background, if that makes sense. I think 95% of my class was, was Latinx, um, mainly Mexican-American from Southern California. Yeah. And so I thought that was very interesting. And uh, one student, I think I've, I said, I've said this story, I don't know how many times, but uh, one student preferred, she, she was very nervous in the class. She was very nervous to um, ask her professor anything uh, mm. just regarding her assignments. And, uh, you know, I was trying to get, get to the root why. Why is she, why is she hesitant? And even it kind of hesitant to approach me. And she finally told me in private after class, after everyone was gone, including the professor, saying, I don't feel comfortable writing in English. 
and she said and and she kind of started to tear up a little bit because she was so embarrassed and I said oh that's that's totally fine you know um I'm not the best with my Spanish but I can definitely try I grew up with the language I'm not fully bilingual I, I I was at a point but um we can definitely give it a go how about we how about we 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 find a common ground and you can write maybe a paragraph in Spanish, and then we go over it in, in English and, and fill in the, the gaps. And she knew more than she thought, you know, and I, I feel like a lot of students, students know more than they than they think they know. And a lot of students think that that, that they're the problem, mm-hmm. you know, and, and no, they're, you know, that's just, you know, everyone's taught a different way. For Rebecca, her journey to becoming a teacher and to get to SDSU is in her blood. My grandfather was bilingual, my grandmother wasn't. She only spoke Spanish, and so my, my mother only spoke Spanish till the age of seven, and she went to Catholic school. Yeah. Um, they wouldn't speak to my grandmother in Spanish, even though the nun was full Mexican and was bilingual. And this nun said, you know, to, to, told my grandfather to tell his wife to stop speaking to my mom so she would not learn, she, so she could learn both languages. Wow. And I think for someone to say that, to stop speaking to your, to your child... Oh my gosh, I think that's so uncalled for. Yeah. And so hearing that experience, yeah. that really affected me. And the fact that I think my parents came, have come so far that, you know, they, they met in high school and uh, they both had aspirations of becoming educators. My dad is an English teacher. He's, he uh, grew up speaking Spanish and English, but he also wanted to educate students on on a subject that he loved. And uh and he still teaches to this day American literature. That That is really representation matters. My brother is also a high school English teacher. And um, it, it's it's nice to see that. And so that's why my mom went into being a preschool teacher, because she didn't want the students to, to go through what she went through. Not only are both Rebecca's parents educators, they're also SDSU alumni. She talks about what it's like following in their footsteps and how they encouraged her and her brother to one day attend the university. I found her her master's thesis and people have checked out her, her thesis and seen that, you know, this here you see a student who who didn't who went into the American education system not knowing a, a lick of English, right? And then going on to making the dean's list all four years of her college career and going straight into SDSU uh, and and graduating with honors and everything. Seeing going from that to to that is just I think incredible, and my dad did the same thing, and they loved the area so much, the school so much that they decided to to move here. <laughs> it's just I think kind of great. Um, and and my brother and I have grown up by SDC our whole lives. So for my for myself in that sense, um, I think I really started wanting to be an educator when I went to the college prep preschool across the street from SDSU. <laughs> that little preschool across the street from SDSU of McDonald's. I asked my mom one day, why did you want to take us to that preschool? You could take it. Th- we're in a we're in a district that has like three other preschools. Why did you choose this one? She said, I wanted you to be by university to, you know, implement that idea. You know, what what is that big building? How can I get in there? You you can gain a, a substantial amount of knowledge just by just Being by looking here. outside the window, you know? <laughs> other mission should be to be the dean one day you're like, you're like a, <laughs> oh you're my amazing. god whoa i mean you're like from birth to death <laughs> from birth to death we also talked to rebecca about what it's like being so close to campus without being able to be there in person and what it's like being under the same roof with a family of educators it's been super super weird because i 
so we try to take walks around our neighborhood daily not well on a, as 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 much as we can yeah. um because i'm under the roof of like well my whole family so five other teachers so like my mom is doing tk right now tk or preschool in our kitchen and like my dad is doing high school in our family room and i'm over here just doing sdsu in my bedroom <laughs> so it's like oh wow. my god we also both related to what Rebecca had to say about one of distance learning's biggest distractions. But overall, it's been very difficult because I think both of you have noticed I have a dog and he comes in at the worst times and <laughs> he barks at the worst, at just the worst times. Like, it's horrible. Like, wow, that's so petty. It's your dog. But no, like, I, I get know. it. But, right? Because they're so no, cute. You and they come in there. Right? They want attention. Thank you. you want to give it to them, but you're like, I'm trying to learn. Right. <laughs> Exactly, um, I'm, I'm trying to work. Dogs, you guys, yes, like, I remember you, they always them, want to play. Two of them bark constantly. Like we not they don't yes. bark constantly, but at the worst times, like I'll be speaking in class, and then someone yes. will come to the door or something, and it's like Pandora's box. Oh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then I turn off my camera, and then I'm like, oh my god, I don't, I don't want the professor to think I'm not here. Like I'm here. It's just my dog is losing his mind, and I don't want you to <laughs> the see. Dogs I don't want understand. To it's so insane. There's so much going on. From dogs to humans, we've all been through a lot this last semester and year. Getting a higher education is tough enough already, but the pandemic has taken things to a whole new level. So to wrap things up, we thought we'd gather a bit of advice from a few of our interview subjects. My advice is to be disruptive, to understand that, you know, you're there for you and you're not there for faculty. And if things don't align with you, that's okay. And find things that do empower you. Um, and I would just say, you know, find people who you really can trust and talk to. So my, my advice to people in the program would be to take advantage of relationships with the faculty because they're all really knowledgeable. They all really care about students. Um, I think that's really special about the program and that's yeah also something that once you're in the professional writing world you don't necessarily get to sit and talk about all of these theoretical ideas and stuff as much so that's something that I really enjoyed. I have some very specific advice for everybody <laughs> and that is especially for students when they when they encounter difficulties which they do communicate with their instructors set up an appointment send emails uh, please please, please communicate because we can get through almost any problem that a student has. So, and same with instructors. If instructors are beginning to have problems, they need to talk to me and I can work them through almost any problem. So number one thing for everybody is, is to communicate, whether it's with their instructor or with the department chair, whoever it is. If they reach out and they make an effort, we can get through it. Thanks for joining us on The Rhetorical Situation. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter for updates and check back in for the next episode in May. Special thanks to Dr. McClish and all our interviewees. We'd also like to thank our web team, Ginger Shoulders and Leslie Riley, as well as Karen Keene and all the hardworking staff of RWS. Until next time, stay safe out there.